we have seen that uh, Tantra practice is a very, very full practice, one that uh, entails putting together a tremendous amount of uh, things and uh, is something that uh, we need to approach slowly, gradually. We can't expect at the beginning to be able to uh, do it uh, in a uh, full way. Obviously not. And so whether we are uh, practicing in a Dharma-like fashion or a real thing fashion, we need to be patient with ourselves. And uh, as uh, Sakya Pandita pointed out, the main thing as the basis is uh, keeping the vows, the uh, ethical discipline. We need the uh, three higher trainings, not only in Sutra, but also in Tantra, training in ethical self-discipline, concentration, and discriminating awareness of the correct view, or voidness, or emptiness. So these, with the force of renunciation and bodhicitta, supplemented by the six far-reaching attitudes or paramitas is what's going to bring us to our goal, whether we practice in a sutra way or we practice in a combined sutra and tantra way. We shouldn't think of uh, Vajrayana as being a separate vehicle, different from uh, Mahayana that's uh, very misinformed to uh, think like that. Within Mahayana, we have sutra path and a tantra path, but both of them are equally Mahayana practices, uh, as is Dzogchen. It's also not something which is uh, separate. It's definitely a Mahayana practice intended to bring us to enlightenment, so, and intended for the benefit of all beings, so it makes it a Mahayana practice. So don't belittle Mahayana as uh, something separate, and I'm doing something that's so much you know, more advanced, Vajrayana. Tantra is uh, considered and well known as a uh, more efficient path, speedier path, and uh, this has to be understood uh, properly. Otherwise, uh, we look at it as just a bargain. You know, we get off cheap. We can do it quickly, and uh, especially when we hear that uh, you know it's easy. That's uh, quite misleading. It's not at all easy. It is uh, faster in general because uh, we are uh, working on uh, methods that are similar to the result in the sense that uh, we want to achieve a body and mind uh, of a Buddha. Body and mind of a Buddha are uh, speech, of course, as part of body, are simultaneous. They are together, and when we uh, practice in a uh, sutra way, then it is uh, not possible to have the uh, causes for a body and causes for a mind simultaneously in one moment of uh, mental activity. And the reason for that is that uh, our mental activity can only take an object, engage with an object in one way. 
And so if we think in terms of uh, voidness, emptiness, then this is the total absence of an impossible way of existing. We project and believe in some impossible way of existing, but it doesn't correspond to reality. And so what is absent is a, an actual referent, an actual, not referent, an actual mode of existence or establishing the existence of something that corresponds to the one that we're projecting out of ignorance. Simple example often I use is that uh, I think I'm the center of the universe and the most important one and should always have my way and everybody should pay attention to me. Well, if I think that I exist in that way, that doesn't correspond to reality. So a me who is the center of the universe and the most important one is totally absent, never existed, can't possibly exist. So, you know, to, you know, I establish that I'm the center of the universe because when I close my eyes, everything disappears and there's just me left. And so I think that that establishes or proves that I'm the center of the universe. Well, that way of establishing that I'm the center of the universe doesn't, doesn't work. <laughs> it's false. So using that as a very simple example, this is what uh, voidness is talking about, emptiness. That there are, you know, it's not that there is a glass and the glass exists, but it's empty of something inside. That's my objection to the word empty, emptiness. It's not that. The word shunyata, the Tibetan, the Sanskrit word, is also the Sanskrit word for zero. It's referring to no such thing, the total absence. And it's not the total absence of conventional reality. There's still conventional reality because things function. Otherwise, cause and effect doesn't work. Karma doesn't work. You know, gaining enlightenment doesn't work. Nothing works. So there is conventional reality. However, it doesn't exist in the way that we project that it exists, that we imagine that it exists. So that's what's uh, absent. And there are many, many levels of uh, impossible ways of establishing that things exist, impossible ways of existing for short, that we project and we have to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. So when we are focusing on voidness, we're focusing on no such thing. Now, when we focus on, so that's the cause for a mind of a Buddha. Roughly speaking, yeah. the correct view of voidness, the correct understanding. And then, well, it gets a little bit more elaborate than that, but that's enough. Then <laughs> the cause for the body of a Buddha is bodhicitta. So bodhicitta is focusing on, as I've said, enlightenment. 
our own individual enlightenments that hasn't happened yet with the intention to attain it. Supported by love and compassion with the intention not only to attain it but to benefit everybody. So those are two quite different ways of focusing on an object. One is there's no such thing, you know, it's devoid of existing in some impossible way. And this is, I'm going to attain it in order to benefit all beings. So in one moment of mental activity, you can't put the two together simultaneously. One can be the force behind the other. They can support each other, and that's how it works in, in Sutra. So in uh, Tantra, of course, you still have bodhicitta. You still have you know, the understanding of voidness. But uh, in Tantra, the, as I said, the mind that is focusing on voidness, well, there is a body associated with it. And so it isn't that you're focusing on the body as such, but in that one mind, which is focusing on voidness, that you're aware that, you, that there's a body there. So this is usually described as the mind that understands voidness appears as the deity. Well, you can understand that in terms of the what's usually translated as the post-meditation, that also is misleading. That way of uh, understanding it is the subsequent attainment, literally. What do you attain after total absorption on voidness? You're still with you know, complete concentration, still meditating. But now, rather than focusing on Absence of impossible ways of existing, you're focusing on, well, but the way, you know, illusion-like voidness is called. That, you know, the body appears, but it's like an illusion. You know, the way that it appears doesn't correspond to reality. I'm not fooled by it. That's your subsequent realization, your subsequent attainment. Now, of course, you could maintain that outside of meditation, but... The main focus is in meditation. So you know, be aware that these are two phases of meditation on voidness, space-like and illusion-like. So anyway, to then just think of, you know, well, now the body and the body is void of true existence, truly established existence, that's not what they're talking about when they're talking about, you know, having the two simultaneously in one Mind, manifest. So, mind that understands voidness has a body. So, practicing like that, one gets closer to the result of having causes for body and mind simultaneously in one moment of manifest mental activity. So, fine. So, that makes it uh, speedier. And it said in uh, one of the uh, tantras, I don't know which one, couldn't find that reference, but uh, it's repeated quite often, that uh, if you keep your tantric vows purely, even with no meditation, which I believe means not 
doing intensive generation and complete stage practice. But if you keep the vows purely, you will attain enlightenment in seven to 14 lifetimes. That's a pretty strong statement, actually. So one has to analyze and think, what does that actually mean? Well, look at the vows. <laughs> and what are the you know, vows? What would you have to do purely for all those lifetimes? And it means not give up bodhicitta. So that means you really have to have the real thing, bodhicitta. And you have to meditate on voidness six times a day. So it's clear that it's not saying no meditation at all. But referring, you know, a very specific type of uh, meditation. It's not clear what level you have to have of bodhicitta and voidness. But uh, this is uh, one presentation that you find in the Tantra text underlying the importance of keeping the vows. I think this is one of the bases for the Sakya Pandita saying, you know, without the vows, there's no initiation, there's no tantra. Then we find uh, another presentation that uh, says that, uh, well, you know, practicing tantra and referring to a Nutri Yoga tantra, the highest class of tantra, you can attain enlightenment in as little as three years and three phases of the moon phase of the moon is, you know, a fortnight, uh, 15 days. So where does that come from? We have to understand where that comes from. It comes from the Kala Chakra Tantra. And in Kala Chakra, there is a very elaborate explanation of uh, the uh, breaths. And uh, the breath shifts from going primarily through one nostril and the other nostril 12 times a day. There are 12 shifts similar to the 12 signs of the zodiac and the 12 months of the year. And, you know, I mean, there's all these parallels in uh, Kala Chakra that you can become seduced by <laughs> the beauty of the symmetry in Kala Chakra. In any case, as the breath shifts from one nostril to another nostril, there's a certain 12 times a day there is a certain number of breaths called deep awareness breaths that enter into the central channel. This is uniquely explained in Kala Chakra. So 56 and a quarter breaths, they say, enter into the uh, central channel each time the breath shifts primarily going through one nostril and another. And if you sort of observe yourself, you'll discover that it is true that the breath goes primarily through one nostril and not both absolutely equally. But at that point, when the shift, it goes equally between the two and it goes into the central channel. Now, if you <laughs> add up how many are needed, you know, there's in Kala Chakra, there's this number 21,600. And that has to do with a certain uh, measurement of uh, um, 
in astronomy and astrology. It has to do with also uh, number of breaths and so on in a lifetime. But, uh, and you have to have 21,600 moments of focus on voidness with, you know, clear light, a non-conceptual cognition with unchanging bliss and so on. But uh, if you add up, multiply, how many of these deep awareness breaths go into the central channel during a, uh, uh, to make up 21,600 during a 100-year lifetime, and then take those number of breaths, of those moments, and have them be consecutive, that adds up to the number of seconds in a three years and three phases of the moon. And because you have to get all these deep awareness breaths in meditation into the central channel, then it's said that you can do that three years and three phases of the moon. So that's where that number derives from. So, you know, it's <laughs> a little bit uh, misleading to have a great hope that after doing a three-year retreat, you're going to become enlightened. Maybe, but uh, don't count on it. Uh, <laughs> then there's a, uh, another um, presentation that we have that uh, appears very often in uh, Dzogchen texts as well, that there are those for whom it happens all at once. And so we might think that, you know, well, we are one of those persons for whom it will happen all at once. Well, that is such a tiny, tiny minority. You know, you have to have built up an unbelievable amount of positive force in previous lives for it to happen at all at once. And happen all at once is not talking about, you know, coming off the street and never having heard anything about Buddhism and you sit and never done any practice and you sit down and voila, you know, happens all at once, you know. You're enlightened. It's referring to uh, uh, going from the uh, path of seeing, seeing pathway of mind all the way to enlightenment, you know, the ten bhumis. That uh, rather than that, you know, once you have non-conceptual cognition of voidness or you've actually accessed uh, rikpa, made that manifest, then there are some that still need to progress gradually through the bhumis, and there are those for whom you know, everything falls away at once and it happens all at once. That's what it's referring to. So it's very important when uh, practicing uh, Tantra to have a realistic attitude about it. One of the most uh, helpful pieces of advice in any of the meditation texts is to meditate without any expectations, without any hopes, or disappointments. If you have no expectations, you won't have any disappointments. That's very helpful in life as well, <laughs> and in dealing with other people. Don't expect anything. 
You know, if uh, things go well, wonderful, rejoice. But remember the eight worldly dharmas as well. Don't, you know, go overboard. You know, wow, fantastic. And then things don't go well and you get all depressed. That doesn't help at all. Makes an obstacle. So, as the young Sirkamipache, you know, his catchword that he says all the time is nothing special. That's, you know, not the attitude of, you know, well, anything, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not the matter, you know, it's not that it doesn't matter. But don't make a big deal out of anything. Just practice steadily with commitment. Trying the best to keep the vows. And then slowly, slowly, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, that uh, don't expect progress to be so quick. If you want to uh, evaluate, look at a five-year period of time and, you know, compare how have we dealt with difficult situations in life then and now. That's the, the test. If I'm better able to deal with challenges that come up in life without getting so upset, with a little bit more patience, wisdom, etc., get along better with people, especially difficult people, then I've made some progress. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? with Dharma practices, to work on ourselves, to try to minimize and eventually get rid of our shortcomings and realize more and more our potentials. So Sutra is helpful for that, combination of Sutra and Tantra makes it even more effective. So, and always keep it a Mahayana practice. That's very important for benefiting everyone. So we have uh, time for more questions, which I hope you have some. Yes. Uh, thank you for a very elaborate uh, overview of the Vajrasattva and the inspiring teachings. Um, and I'm left with a question. You have talked about the importance of being ready for the Vajra life or the path. And uh, where do you place the Nandro in this, uh, in this picture? Is it, uh, which of the sutras is it? Is it, on the, no, is it on the sutra path or is it on the, on the Vajra path? Well, there are, as I uh, explained in the beginning, there are the shared mundro, preparatory practices, that's completely sutra, four thoughts that turn the mind to the dharma, refuge, renunciation, bodhicitta, paramitas, and there are the unshared ones, which would be the prostration, vajrasattva, mandala offering, guru yoga, I should also mention that uh, although those are the 
standard four that you find in uh, some traditions. There are more that can be done. Uh, you know, 100,000 water bowls, 100,000 clay tablets. I mean, there's a whole bunch of uh, mundro practices that uh, can be done. 100,000 is not a set figure. You know, in some traditions, it's 110,000, some 108,000, some 130,000. You know, it's you know, nothing special about a particular number. Whatever is uh, in our own lineage, we do. And there can be many other things. You know, there's standard mundra. And there are specific mundras that your own teacher gives to you. And that could be quite, you know, different. You know, I always saw running around for getting visas for a certain Rinpoche. And, you know, one attendant had refugee papers. One attendant had a uh, Nepalese passport. I mean, it was unbelievably complicated. And writing letters and doing all the arrangements. This I saw as part of my mundra. So I think that uh, we can look at uh, any sort of dharma activity as a mundro, that it's building up positive force and uh, you know, weakening negative force of, you know, oh, I don't want to go you know, to the embassy and you know, go all the way down to Delhi and deal with all this bureaucracy. And, uh, get rid of your negative force. Uh, you know, I don't want to do that. And we can do Mundro, you know, these 100,000 things as a, uh, an event all at once. Or you can do each one when it fits in, when it's convenient. You can do it as an all-day affair. Or you can do one session in the morning, one session at night. Or only one session a day. You know, the important thing is continuity. If you're going to do it, you know, don't break the continuity. So there are many ways of doing this. And that, whether you call it part of sutra, whether you call it part of tantra, can be debated. However, what can't be debated, I believe, is that the shared <laughs> common gondro comes before the unshared one. If you don't know what refuge is and don't have some feeling of refuge, reciting words, you know, I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, which means nothing to you isn't going to have very much effect. So you need the shared ones first. And you might have an initiation before you finish them. That can happen. In fact, most of the time it happens. Then you just keep the, the basic commitment. The basic commitment might do might be to uh, recite, you know, one mala, you know, hundred eight times of Omani Pemegum. Fine, you do that. But then make more and more preparation to do a more sophisticated practice. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I, I want to thank you for uh, 
all your uh, lecturing and uh, it's uh, been a real honor and uh, very inspiring uh, to uh, be able to spend so much time and listening to all this. It's, uh, I'm going to take it with me to uh, <laughs> my day job and that's where my real dharma, my main dharma work is, helping people, uh, you know, as I told you in my work. Uh, my question is, um, uh, you talk about this um, uh, impossible ways of existence, mm -hmm. and um, uh, as I uh, when uh, as I've uh, talked with uh, people who have been, they they told me about this uh, is how uh, Tsongkhapa talks about the object of negation, this mm -hmm. um, uh, this idea, and uh, the way uh, the way uh, and when you talk about it also, uh, this is kind of a uh, non-affirming negative, uh, sheer negation. And, but uh, as mm -hmm. I understand, there's also kind uh, a different kind of uh, understanding of the idea of emptiness. Can you can you say something about that? Is, uh, does that make a different uh, way to practice, or uh, how does that um, affect the way uh, people uh, think about this? practices. Right. That gets very technical if uh, we speak about uh, that. Um, there are two, th you know, there are, now I have to exercise great self-control because I could speak about this for the next hour. So let's see if I can be a little bit uh, what should I say? Mindful of what I'm saying. There are affirmation phenomenon and negation phenomenon, both of which are existent phenomenon. An existent phenomenon is something that can be validly known. So I can validly know that uh, um, a book and I can validly know uh, not an elephant. You know, you can look at something and know that it is uh, not something else, right? So that's a negation phenomenon, something that we know by negating something. And that we can know, and of course the Interesting question is, uh, how does not an elephant appear to you when you know that's not an elephant? Interesting question to contemplate. Uh, <laughs> so there are two types of uh, uh, negation phenomenon. You know, negatingly known phenomenon, you know it by negating something. And uh, there's uh, one which uh, is uh, an affirming, and one which is non-affirming. So the uh, affirming is that uh, it affirms, after it's made the negation, there's something that it uh, affirms, that it implies, implicit. So for instance, uh, This is not a tablecloth. 
on the table. So when you know that uh, this is not a tablecloth, after you have negated that, you have affirmed that it's something else. It's not a tablecloth, it's a piece of paper. So that's an affirming negation. A non-affirming one would be, there is no tablecloth. After you've negated that, it doesn't imply anything. And even if you say, this is not a tablecloth on the table, or there is no tablecloth on the table, the table is just the location, the basis of the negation. We're not talking about that. We're talking about uh, this is not this, which implies it's something else. So in the uh, meditation on voidness, what uh, you want to uh, focus on, and this is uh, true in terms of all the tenet systems, in Indian tenet systems, is that uh, there is no corresponding you know, real, you know uh, referent object is actually what it's talking about, uh, corresponding object, corresponding thing that corresponds to what we're projecting. There's no such thing. Never existed. So, you know, within that type of non-affirming existence, uh, non-affirming uh, negation, it could be there is no tablecloth on the table. There are such things as tablecloths. And there is no um, flying saucer on the table. Well, there's no such thing as flying saucers. So there's no monster on the table. No monster under the bed of the frightened child. The child believes there's a monster under the bed. And so, you know, that imagination will cause them to have fear. There's not a real monster under the table that's causing them fear. Right? Or the example that I love to use is uh, there's a, uh, um, a man dressed as Father Christmas on the street at Christmas time. So it appears as though this is Father Christmas, but it doesn't correspond to reality. There's no Father Christmas. But there is a man that appears to <laughs> look like Father Christmas. Okay. So in uh, meditation, then what one wants to focus on is there is no such thing corresponding to what I imagine. That is holding up, backing up, like in a, uh, a play. You know, when you have scenery in a play, you have something which is backing it up, holding up the scenery that looks like, you know, a forest or something like that. So it appears to be a forest, and there's, you know, what is missing is something on the side of the object 
which corresponds to reality, you know, to that mental hologram that is holding it up, that establishes it, that it's there. You can't establish, you know, if you dissect and so on, you know, where is, you know, is it in this atom, is it in that atom? You can't find it. Nevertheless, it appears. So in the meditation, you want to focus on no such thing. So this is space-like voidness. It's like space. Space doesn't mean empty space. You have to look at the definition of space. The absence of anything tangible or obstructible that would prevent something from occupying three dimensions. So it's a property of this book that no matter where I move the book, there's nothing preventing it from occupying three dimensions. It's not talking about the space that it occupies. So voidness is like that because there is nothing on the side of the object preventing it from functioning. and being validly known. So it's space-like voidness. And then illusion-like voidness, it appears to be established from its own side. You know, oh, there's really a problem here. As if, you know, there's some solid thing right here, sitting here, the problem. Whereas you can only establish that there's a problem in terms of the concept of a problem. And it helps us to communicate about it, but it's only in terms of this concept of problem that we think of it in terms of a problem. Nevertheless, it's not that there's nothing troublesome going on. There is. So we speak like that, whereas a non-affirming, an affirming negation would be this doesn't exist in this way, but exists in that way. So one has to be careful. You know, the correct understanding of voidness is, you know, you understand it as dependent arising. That doesn't mean that things don't exist, you know, that that is a, an affirming negation. There's a way of uh, meditating on it. It's quite different. And that's quite different from, you know, I don't know if this is what you had in mind, you know, other voidness, other emptiness, Shendong view. But that is uh, taken on, you know, different levels. So you can speak of it on uh, a level in terms of the object, you can speak on it in terms of the level of the mind that uh, the object doesn't exist either as truly existent, non-existent, both or neither, therefore it is something other than that, you know, beyond words and concepts, which actually is just talking about non-conceptual cognition avoidness. Of course, it's beyond words and concepts because that's conceptual, the non-conceptual understanding. So it's uh, just another way of expressing that. And on a, uh, from the side of the mind, it's speaking about the clear light mind is devoid of grosser levels of mind. So it's devoid of other grosser levels. 
So that's something quite different. They don't need to be contradictory. This self-voidness and other voidness. If one looks very carefully at the definitions. Okay. Yes. I didn't understand the, the, the difference between Rigpa and clear right. You between about, what? You talked about the yesterday, I think. Between clear light and what? Rigpa. Rigpa? Yes. Right. Uh, clear light is the most subtle uh, level of mental activity. It is what... Uh, uh, continues, no beginning, no end, continues through the death process. It uh, continues even when we're enlightened. But we have all the tendencies and uh, uh, habits of karma, of uh, the disturbing emotions, of uh, you know, all these sort of things. And they are imputed, is the word, on that uh, continuity of the clear light mind. Or you can say on the continuity of the, me of the Tsongkhapa says on the continuity of the person imputed on the clear light mind for various reasons. Now, imputed just means that, uh, you know, in one moment, as an example of something that's imputed. It uh, doesn't mean that it's conceptual. For instance, speed. In one moment, an object is in just one place. Next moment, it's in another place. Next moment, it's in another place. So we can impute on that motion. But motion doesn't occur in one moment. Is motion just conceptual? No. There is such a thing as motion. You can see it. So that's, uh, you know, there's like all these pictures of us over our lifetime and the me is imputed on it. Not just in one moment. And then the next picture, it's somebody completely else, different. So likewise, these habits and tendencies are imputed. One moment I uh, um, got angry, another incident I got angry, another time I got angry. So there's a tendency to get angry. One moment I smoked a cigarette, next, you know, a few hours later another cigarette, another cigarette. So imputed, there's a tendency, there's a habit. So these are imputed on the clear light mind because there's continuity of that through this lifetime, through uh, death into next lifetimes as well. But you can also have the uh, clear light mind free of that without these, uh, these things imputed on it if you just speak about the basic nature of the clear light mind because these things that are imputed on it are like 
stains, they say, like clouds in the sky. So if we speak about that pure nature of the clear light mind, in other words, the clear light mind in its aspect of not having these things imputed on it, that's rikpa. There are many levels of rikpa, but that's, you know, basic idea. You're welcome. Yeah, I'm t thinking about yidams and initiations. Um, clearly, they're not archetypes. They're more than archetypes. They're not what? Archetypes. Artifacts. Archetypes. Archetypes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Sorry. So um, when there's a transmission, something is transmitted. And also people can have closeness to different yidams. You can have a closeness from previous lives. You can feel a closeness when a teacher comes. What is it that crosses sort of between between lifetimes? It should be sort of easy to understand, but what is it that crosses between a teacher and someone having a transmission? Which I guess I mean it's possible, of course, to 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 meditate on a on a on a and deity and, and get a totally different result. But it seems like it's pointing somewhere. It's there's something that is, is transmitted. C could you say something about more about That's that? That's a, a very good question. And uh, first, what it's not. And what it's not is like throwing a football to you. You know, here is the, you know, what I'm going to transmit. And I'm going to throw it to you. And now you catch it. And now I've got it. So certainly it's not you know, something concrete like that. So one has to understand dependent arising and emptiness or voidness, that something will arise dependently on many factors, many causes and conditions. So from past lives or past whatever, there has been interaction and we can impute that, uh, you know, like there's a memory. Something happened, and then we remember something, you know, that conceptually represents what happened. So it's a memory. So likewise, this feeling of closeness or connection with something is based on a previous connection, and maybe not just once. And so there is... There are circumstances, you know, like the initiation or circumstances like, you know, going to a Buddhist center or to India and you meet this person and there's this feeling of closeness that automatically arises. So it's not that they've thrown something to you. It's not that uh, this uh, connection is, uh, you know, sitting inside your mental continuum waiting to pop out. It's not something like that. You, it just is, it happens. And it happens dependently on all the causes and conditions. So there's nothing solid that is there. Nevertheless, it functions. An easy way to uh, 
start to uh, become familiar with this is, for instance, uh, this chair is made of atoms. And the atoms are made of subparticles, and these are made up of energy field and stuff like that. And the same thing with my body. It's mostly empty space. Nevertheless, this is the important word, nevertheless, I don't fall through the chair. There's this nevertheless factor that despite it not being solid, concrete, findable, it functions. And so the same thing with the transmission. It functions. There's nothing being thrown to you. There's no me catching it and there's no, you know, <laughs> teacher throwing it either. Okay. Um, the word, thank you for your teachings. They've been fantastic. Lots to digest. <laughs> In uh, Buddhism has become very popular and uh, amongst psychologists. Buddhism, psycho Buddhism, yeah, generally, and uh, uh, there has been a comparison to uh, with Yidam's to Jungian um, archetypes. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Well, <laughs> the uh, archetypes are something part of collective unconscious. There's no concept of a collective unconscious in uh, Buddhism. It's not that, uh, you know, there's one big nose in the sky and we are all part of that big nose. So it's not that, uh, I mean, we all have individual noses. So similarly, there's not just one collective mind and we're all sort of, you know, part of that. So that's not Buddhism. And the uh, archetypes, there are certain myths, certain things that are found in common in many societies. But uh, these archetypes are also of the evil witch and, uh, you know, all these sort of uh, images we find in mythology. And uh, uh, Yidam. You know, you don't have a yidam of the evil witch and the, you know, these sort of uh, things. You know, the wise, you know, uh, old woman, wise man, this sort of uh, thing. Uh, they are, as I was saying, specific methods to integrate as an infographics all the different uh, uh, teachings that can then serve to be able to uh, help others along the path to attain the form body of a Buddha to further help others. So their purposes are quite different and what they represent are quite different. You know, each Yidam represents uh, all of enlightenment and then they have, you know, more special thing that they, you know, emphasize like Avalokiteshvara, Chenrezig for compassion, or Manjushri for wisdom, clarity of mind. These type of Tara, nurturing energy, 
type of thing. So there are those things, but those are quite different. You know, those are all positive qualities, as archetypes include negative things uh, as well. So, you know, they're quite different. And they don't, they're not found inherently in your mind, whereas archetypes supposedly are. Uh, I, I've never been close to actually Jungian psychology, but I wondered what, uh, you know, what, because the term archetype is sometimes used. Yes, it is. So Jung had a little bit of uh, contact with uh, mm -hmm. Buddhism, but uh, also he uh, misunderstood mm -hmm. uh, the imagery in Tantra of a couple. Mm -hmm. If you look at the uh, uh, words for the couple, Yavyum, those are the words for father and mother. They're not the words for male and female. And just as you need a father and mother in order to give birth to a child, likewise you need a father and you need compassion and wisdom method and wisdom in order to give rise to Buddhahood. So this is the image. But he took it as, you know, the uh, masculine and feminine principle, and you need to unite that and discover, you know, the one or the other within you. So that's not Buddhism. Certainly not talking about feminine principle and masculine principle. Doesn't mean that those things are unimportant or helpful to address. They are. But Buddhism doesn't talk about that. I don't think that Buddhism does. Keep, you know, things clear. You have many different forms of psychology, many things that are very useful. It's wonderful. Don't throw that into Buddhism and don't think that Buddhism is only psychology, or Buddhism is only meditation, reducing it, shortchanging it. It's not just that. It's much, much more. Uh, I'm going to throw my theory out, which was that uh, I've had a hard time uh, getting into uh, Vajrayana or deity practice. Mm -hmm. And the way I've understood it has been that uh, in order to develop qualities such as compassion and wisdom, uh, which are abstract qualities, then these qualities have been anthropomorphized into a deity on which you can project or see uh, those qualities so that you can, uh, you know, it's a method which in which you can both see outside and inside within yourself, develop these qualities through the practice of uh, imbuing a yidam with these qualities, something like that. Well, as I uh, said, these uh, yidams can be looked at as a form of infographics. You know, infographics is something that uh, is a graphical representation of something that uh, conveys information. So four arms convey the information of the four immeasurables. 
or the four bodies of four faces, the four bodies of a Buddha, or six arms, the six paramitas. So it is a way of, uh, you know, making, um, conveying information that makes it easier to keep in mind. So that's not quite the same as uh, personifying God the Creator as an old man with a white beard sitting on a throne. That's personification. It's different, isn't it? Yeah, I didn't say personification, anthropomorphizing. Pardon? Anthropomorphizing. Anthropomorphizing. Yeah, making something into uh, equalities. Right, but yeah. I, but yeah. I, but I, I what, whether we call it personification or anthropomorphize, <laughs> anthropomorphic, <laughs> anthropomorphication. <laughs> Nevertheless, there's a difference between God Almighty with a white beard on a throne and a yidam. So you have to think: Is there a difference? What is the difference? It's not that, you know, this is a personal God that I can relate to and worship. So I'm going to worship Chenrezig. I'm going to worship Tara. Oh, Tara, Tara, save me. It's not Saint Tara. Mm -hmm. So well, different. Yeah. So fine, you know, what you're saying is uh, a helpful way of... Uh, working with these yidams and just, you know, be clear about uh, how you conceptualize it and don't have extraneous, irrelevant things as part of the package. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, it has been expressed that some people are fascinated with the Vajrayana, and I think, of course, mm -hmm. there are, and maybe maybe the older ones who read all these uh, books about Tibet and David Neal and all these kind of things, but... Hippie generation. Mm -hmm. The hippie generation. Yeah, yes, exactly. But, and I think there's a tendency there to kind of see Tibetan Buddhism as something, magical Buddhism or something. Mm -hmm. But I think also... <coughs> I sense there's also some reluctance among practitioners to embrace the Vajrayana out of, for example, misunderstanding of what the Yidams are, uh, their vows to be taken, there ha you have to go at a personal relationship with the teacher, maybe I'm losing my freedom, and there's a big mountain called the Nyandra I'm supposed to climb after doing a little bit of Shine and stuff. And so I, some people, I think, want to bypass Vajrayana and but, but Togchen and Mahmuda sounds very nice because relaxing into the pure state of the mind. That sounds nice, uh, but I think maybe it sometimes it feeds a little bit into our laziness. Mm -hmm. could, could you give some advice to us uh, who are Sangha organizers, how we should kind of introduce Vajrayana into our curriculum or into our you know, how we should present it, how long should it wait, what's the best way to kind of open up to uh, the possibility of practicing the Vajrayana? Well, 
as I've said, it is uh, potentially quite dangerous to get involved with Tantra prematurely. You can go on all sorts of weird trips, you know, and to the extreme of even schizophrenia. And so, uh, you know, let alone reborn as a ghost and stuff like that, we don't even have to speak about that level. But, you know, if you really go off into some fantasy world and I'm really, you know, this figure or that figure. So I think that uh, main emphasis should always be on the basic teachings. Mojong, mind training, this type of uh, stuff. And, you know, don't present Mundro as, you know, having to pay your dues in order to join the club. <laughs> but uh, rather, as I was saying, we have such an unbelievable habit of uh, acting negatively and thinking negatively and in a disturbed way that we need to, you know, by repetition, build up something positive, some positive force. Otherwise, automatically, the negative tendency will come up. And that's why you need to repeat this so many times. So if people understand why they're doing this, what is the benefit? This, you find, is the standard presentation in all the Buddhist texts. Look at Bodhicayavatara, engaging in Bodhisattva behavior by Shantideva. What's the first chapter? The benefits of Bodhicitta. First you explain the benefits. Then you become motivated to actually try to generate it. And so likewise, people understand what is the benefit and get the proper preparation for it. Then they're happy to do the mundra. Otherwise, you know, the attitude is I can't wait till it's over till I, you know, get to the good stuff. So I think this is uh, very important. And Sokchen, as His Holiness says, this is presented so often in the form of Buddhist propaganda. I mean, it's quite clear from Chemba and from my own Nyingma teacher, the old Dujum Rinpoche, that uh, Maha Yoga, Anu Yoga, Ati Yoga, just Dzogchen, each of them contain each other. You can get to Rikpa, but it's not going to, you know, manifest the form of a Buddha body unless you've done Maha Yoga with emphasis on generation stage. You haven't been visualizing yourself as, you know, a Buddha figure. Why should Rikpa manifest as a Buddha, you know, the appearance as a Buddha? And if you haven't greased the pathways of the central channels with uh, Zalong practice, you know, the channels and the winds with Anu Yoga practice, it's not going to happen all by itself. You know, the pathways have to be greased so that when you focus, you know, on Rikpa, automatically it will dissolve. So, 
Raha Yoga, Anu Yoga, Atsu Yoga, it's just a matter of what they emphasize. You can't do without. Generation stage to have the cause for a body of a Buddha, the uh, Anu Yoga, the Zalong, in order to have the causes for the blissful mind of a Buddha, and then Atsu Yoga to get to Rikpa. So, and it's not just relax and, you know, it all happens at once and, you know, you're already a Buddha and like that. That has to be understood. Otherwise, it's so easy for it to be misunderstood and people just look at it as a bargain, cheap. So if it's presented, you know, in a proper way, fantastic. It's certainly not for beginners. The real thing I'm talking about, the real thing is not for beginners. Okay. That's why keeping secrecy is so important private. Things shouldn't be broadcast and advertised. You know, when things become too, you know, His Holiness Dalai Lama was asked about pure visions, you know, and dhammas and things like this, that, you know, will there be more in the future? And His Holiness said, yes, there will be more in the future. Why? Because when practices become too widespread and too publicly known so that they no longer have a sense of sacredness. You know, when you already have Kalachakra t-shirts and a Kalachakra ashtray, this type of, uh, of thing, then there's no longer any respect for it. And at that point, Vajradhara, you know, is the Buddhist way of, of uh, expressing it, will reveal, you know, another pure vision, you know, of another form. That's important to keep in mind. Things should be kept private. This is something which has really been uh, abused by us Westerners. So, at least in our own practice, you know, don't make a big show of it. It has to be sacred to us. We respect it. We don't want other people asking, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And, you know, picking up your budrum, you know, playing with it, baby playing with the bell. You know, we don't want that. Thank you for these um, wonderful teachings about yesterday and today. Um, Vajrayana is so vast and it's so many things I don't really understand. Um, and especially when it comes to energies, wind, these kind of things, I feel my understanding is pretty poor. Um, but also at my, and maybe I haven't really applied myself to, to try and understand it that much either. But my 
current stage of practice is um, doing the long draw, the unshared um, long draw, where I'm taking a long, very long time, but I'm about halfway. Um, so, but my question is, um, what um, is it useful at this stage to really try and dive into the theory and understand the sort of tantra more deeply, or should would you recommend that that can be more of a gradual process, sort of coming as I go along? Everything depends on the individual person. For some people, they have uh, a great capacity to uh, understand and study many, many things. Some people get confused. So it really has to be uh, individually decided. You know, what is my capacity? What is, uh, you know, what will be of help? You can consult your teacher, but the teacher might not know you personally. Don't expect that the teacher is you know, an omniscient Buddha. Seeing the teacher as a Buddha is never meant to uh, be taken literally. If you look at the qualifications <laughs> of a teacher, never anywhere is the qualification of the teacher that they are actually an enlightened being. That's not there. As I say, you know, if he's an enlightened being, then you should know the telephone number of everybody on the planet. He's omniscient. Obviously, not meant literally. So you consult the teacher, but also use your own discriminating awareness. You know, know yourself. What's your capacity? Am I getting confused? Is it too much? Something that would help me if I can understand, you know, many things. Ultimately, if we want to benefit all beings, you have to know everything. There isn't anything that a bodhisattva doesn't train in. A very famous line. So, in order to practice Tantra, however, you know, it's usually given as a, uh, um, one of the prerequisites at initiation is that you should have faith in the Tantra method. Well, there's blind faith that's never called for in Buddhism, or there's faith based on, faith means belief. I believe this is valid based on reason. But, you know, you've had an explanation and it seems, oh, this is pretty valid. Makes sense. It has to make sense. If it doesn't make sense, then after a while you give up thinking this is crazy. So a basic theory of it I think is very important to know before you get involved with it. Then you have some confidence in it. You don't have to become a great scholar, but just the general idea of what's involved so that you don't have weird superstitious projections on it, that's some magic trick or trip or something like that. Someone else? Um, you said today that um, 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 the form bodies fulfill the purposes of others, right? And that uh, dharmakaya fulfill the purpose of oneself, right? Yeah. Could you elaborate a little bit more about that, please? Well, why would a Buddha appear? I would appear as a Buddha 
in order to be able to help others. So any appearance that a Buddha has, you know, a Buddha can appear in all form, in any form. You know, may I be a bridge, may I be, you know, whatever. We have all these prayers. So Buddha can appear in anything. That's to benefit others. So these are form bodies and appears in special type of form bodies to help Arya Bodhisattvas, that's Sambhogakaya, and different types of emanation of that Nirmanakayas to benefit different beings, different kinds of Nirmanakaya. Now, what is a Buddha's own purpose is to have the omniscient mind that will enable him to benefit others. So that's Dharmakaya, the omniscient mind of a Buddha. So it fulfills and has fulfilled, you know, the true stopping. When you think in terms of uh, the nature body, I mean, there are many, uh, there are many different explanations of the nature body, the subhavakaya of a Buddha. But one of them is that it's the voidness of the mind of a Buddha and the true stoppings on the mind of a Buddha. And so, I mean, you can also have the inseparability of all the other bodies and so on, which means that the two truths of them, basically. So it comes down to a similar type of thing. And uh, that has fulfilled the Buddha's own purposes by attaining the true stopping. And because of that, it enables the Buddha to benefit others. Because there's a true stopping of, you know, the emotional and cognitive obscurations. In other words, no longer does uh, the mind make these appearances of impossible ways of existing? So cognitive obscurations, and you no longer believe that they correspond to reality. So that's the emotional ones. So it's gone forever. So that fulfills the Buddha's own purpose. To attain enlightenment, it's enabled him to become enlightened so that he can benefit others. And the form bodies are how he benefits others by being either a bridge or, you know, a bodhisattva helping them, or these yidams, which serve as a method of practice for others. Yeah? I think you have to push the switch. Yeah. Um, you also said that visualizing ourselves in these yidam forms it, uh, the, the purpose of it will be to benefit others, right. to be able to benefit others. Mm -hmm. um, is that sort of... Um, Including ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, obviously by weaving things together and, and so on for ourselves. And making as a yeah. cause, a, a closer cause to the body of a Buddha, mm. imagining that we have one already. Mm. But uh, are we sort of, is, is this um, of visualizing the yidams? They are Sambhogakaya forms, aren't they? Or is it, is it sort of a, I'm a bit confused on this, I have to admit. But maybe you could clarify that um, you started by asking the question, why would we want to visualize ourselves like these uh, mm -hmm. forms? And uh, I got the impression that the answer is that uh, the, the motivation should be to be able to benefit others. Right. Yeah. So maybe you could clarify a bit how 
visualizing ourselves in these forms will help benefit others? Well, first of all, in terms of Sambhogakaya or Nirmanakaya and Tantra, Sambhogakaya is identified with the speech, the enlightening speech of a Buddha, and Nirmanakaya with the body of a Buddha. So we incorporate both of them here with the uh, Yidam, with the mantra and the uh, visualization. Uh, how do we benefit others? We can do that both in meditation, you know, imagining that we're benefiting others, or actually working to help benefit others. So if, for instance, um, we come across somebody who is, uh, has a problem, comes to us with a difficult problem, and explains that to us, and from our side, if we think in terms of our ordinary self, you know, well, I don't feel anything, and you know, I don't want to be bothered, and this is too difficult, and I don't understand, and so on. So if we dissolve that negative image of ourselves, that ordinary image, in terms of voidness, then it doesn't correspond to reality. You know, it's arisen like this for many causes and conditions, you know, that our laziness and uh, whatever. So it's not something, you know, inherent, solid, you know, forever. And then we imagine ourselves, and of course we need to do this instantly, but imagine that we arise as the Yidam and Chenrezi. So no, I do have compassion. Or Manjushri, no, I do have clarity of mind, understanding. And reminding ourselves of this, being mindful of this is what mindfulness means, to remind yourself, to remember. Then, in actually helping somebody, we're doing that not on the basis of, I don't really feel like doing it, but it's my duty because I'm supposed to be a good Buddhist, and you know, all of that. But there's a much more stable basis of it. So this is how you apply it in, in real life, which is where it counts, actually, <laughs> in real life. Of course, in meditation, you imagine that the lights go out and it benefits all beings and stuff like that. But uh, that doesn't, uh, that's just a rehearsal of what, you, of what you actually want to do. And don't get into some magic trick, you know, that there's this suffering person and you go woo-woo-woo and, you know, imagine lights going to them, and, you know, all of that. And don't do anything. Just sit there emanating, you know, with a big smile, you know, like that. You have to actually be active. But the, you know, the Yidam practice in actual life helps us to um, access these qualities that we have the potentials for and gives us the courage to actually use them. For instance, I find, you know, just from my own experience, that if I don't understand something, I'm translating or trying to figure out how to express something and so on, we stop, we do a lot of Manjushri. Uh, mantra, like 
various visualizations helps very much then, you know, no, I want to have clarity of mind. Not just identify with, you know, I'm confusion, I don't understand, I'm never going to figure this out. It then just uplifts you. Oh, yeah, clarity of mind, I want to have clarity of mind, I have clarity of mind. Then you look at it. Your whole attitude has changed. And usually you're better able to understand. So the same thing with compassion. You know, you have a difficult situation in the family or at work and so on. And oh, yeah, it's horrible and you get discouraged and so on. So on. Oh, well, money pain and home. You know, you think in terms of compassion. You think of being filled with inspiration and light from Chinrezi. And you start to feel something. Then you develop more of a compassionate feeling toward that situation and the people in that situation in your office. So it can be used very effectively. Um, so, um, about um, in approaching um, uh, our uh, f fellow members in the community and how to learn from other, uh, you know, not, uh, of course, we're learning from teachers, but, you know, every, we also have some thing to learn learn from each other but we can also confuse each other and I was wondering if you sort of yeah like yesterday on the more community spirit but sort of from uh, your personal experience and from your uh, Buddhist knowledge sort of how to uh, learn from our mm, uh, what is what should we say? Uh, uh, aspiring noble sangha, uh, aspiring to be noble, uh, but well, look at the lojong, the mind training teachings. It's a perfect instruction of how to do that. You know, when somebody puts me down and insults me and so on, look at them as my teacher. Look at them as you know the teacher of patience. I mean, there's all these verses both in the eight versa, uh, mind training, and in uh, 37 bodhisattva practices. So this is the type of way, I mean, the information that you, they give you might be crazy, it might be completely incorrect. That's not what you're learning from them. You know, you have to you know, ascertain, is this person a valid source of information or not? If they're not a valid source of information, you know, you don't believe what they say, you check it out. But uh, they can be a wonderful teacher of patience. Um, as they say, you know, everybody can be a teacher. You know, learn from the dog. The dog, no matter where it is, can lie down and go to sleep. Dog isn't fussy. Doesn't have something, need to have something special. And no matter how much you yell at the dog, the dog still loves you and, you know, follows you and so on loyal dog can teach us a lot so like this one uh, as uh, you get in the instructions uh, of the uh, 
healthy relationship with the spiritual teacher. You focus on the good qualities, not the bad qualities. Bad qualities of complaining will only depress you. No benefit. Criticizing doesn't mean that you deny them. But don't focus on them. See the positive qualities. This is something that can inspire you. So if you look, everybody has some sort of positive qualities. And that's what you focus on. Good. Well, I was asked to uh, bring it to an end now. So thank you very much for uh, your attention. And if there's anything, as His Holiness always says, if there's anything useful, yeah, you're welcome to pursue it further. And if there's not, then forget about it. <laughs>